So there's a classic kids game that many of you probably played when you were growing up, and uh, it's one that I know that I played, and uh, it, it's this game that, that evidently transcends generations. Um, it doesn't matter how old you are or when you grew up, uh, this is a game that you probably played. Kind of like some songs just seem to transcend generations. Uh, there's some reason, or for some reason, my daughters know Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and Jesus Loves Me as if they were new today, but obviously they've been around for a while. So what is this game? Well, what do you think it is? Go ahead and guess. Maybe tell somebody around you or somebody that's near you and, and guess, guess what game you think this is. It's not Simon Says, but that would be a good guess. It's not Hide and Seek. That would also be a good guess. It's not Tag, which is also a good guess. Now you're maybe wondering, what game is this? Well, the game is Follow the Leader. And in this Follow the Leader, typically I feel like it's an older kid who is usually the leader. They want all these uh, little kids to follow them. And so in Follow the Leader, they, they do different things, different activities, uh, and, and they maybe are running all around. There's usually not just a straight, slow path. They're like running every which way and zigging and zagging and going all different kinds of directions uh, and maybe going up hills and rolling down hills and doing jumping jacks and all different kinds of silly things, trying to get others to follow the leader. And uh, similar to Simon Says, I guess, uh, is if you don't follow the leader, then you get out for that round. If you don't match one of the movements or the actions of the leader, you get out. So you're called to follow the leader. And uh, today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about a, a leader that, that we ought to follow in our own lives. Now, we aren't going to be out of the round, so to speak, if we don't follow this leader. Uh, but as we are led, we are called, just like in the game Follow the Leader, to co copy the movements and the actions of the one that we follow, the one who leads us. And so Paul talks today in our passage about those who are led by the Spirit of God. When we are led by the Spirit, we become obedient to the Word of God, and our lives actually begin to show more and more and more the likeness of Jesus Christ, more and more likeness to the way and the life of Jesus. He is the leader that we are called to follow each and every day in, in all of his ways and, and his actions and his word. So hello to everyone tuning in today, whether you're in person here in Chippewa or uh, over in our classic service, um, or maybe you're joining us in Moon or you're watching online, wherever you may be, welcome. My name is Pastor Ben and I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Pathway. And it is my joy and privilege to share God's word with you today uh, as we consider what God has for us and how we might be able to line our lives up with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So today we're going to continue in the book of Romans, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the believers in the city of Rome. So if you have your Romans scripture journal with you, you can turn to pages 36 and 37 as we spend time in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 18 today. Uh, you could also turn in the YouVersion Bible app, or you could access the Pathway app, which will actually link you to the YouVersion Bible app. Or, like I have here, you can pull out your physical Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8. As we go along today, we're going to talk about a few distinctives for those who are disciples of Jesus Christ. Some of these distinctives, they are led by the Spirit of God. They've been adopted as children of God. They experience suffering as heirs with Jesus, and they will be glorified with Jesus. So let's jump in. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 12. We're going to read 12 through 14 to begin. So then, brothers— we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, 
you will die. But if by the Holy Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Verse 14 is where we get our first point for today. We see that disciples of Jesus are first led by the Spirit of God. Led by the Spirit of God. If we jump back to verse 12, we're reminded of the encouraging reality that for those who are in Christ, we don't have to go on sinning when we are in Christ because we are new creations. And new creations live out of the Holy Spirit at work in us. In fact, it's not only that we don't have to go on sinning, but what is true of the one who is in relationship with Jesus, we actually have no excuse to continue living in sin. Because we have the Holy Spirit of God living through us, we cannot keep living in sin if we are following him as our leader. There's always a way out. As Pastor Jeff shared a couple of weeks ago, he said, you cannot defeat sin altogether, but you have a fighting chance in every battle. And that fighting chance is not you. It's not your power or your strength. It's not your ability, but it is leaning on the Lord and his strength. It's following the leading of the Holy Spirit as he guides and directs your steps. And it's allowing the word of God to so take hold of your hearts that you might not sin against him because you're, you're so filled up with the Word of God in your heart and in your life that there just isn't room for sin. 1 John 3, 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of of God. Now, we're not talking about perfection. We're not talking about never, ever, ever sinning because that's not possible for us while we're still on this earth. We aren't Jesus. So we're not talking about perfection, but uh, we, we see it back in Romans 7 that Paul has actually reminded us of his own struggles, his own challenges, his own shortcomings, that at times when he wants to do good, uh, in Romans 7, 18, it says he has the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Our passage today reveals to us where the power comes from in order to live obediently to God and to follow him. So again, we're not talking about perfection. Paul never suggests that, that the inheritance of this future life uh, requires that we stop sinning altogether, but he demands a clear long-term progress toward Christ-likeness, this process of sanctification, of becoming more and more and more like Jesus. Verse 13 brings up this life and death struggle of the flesh and the spirit. Again, it reads, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is not just a good versus a bad decision, but a life versus death decision. It's a big deal. So what does Paul mean by living according to the flesh? Well, when you have a temptation towards sin and, and you say yes to it, then you're living according to your flesh. You're living according to your sinful nature, whether it is to, to speak in a certain way towards someone, to treat someone differently because of the color of their skin or the language of their mouth or the amount of money in their bank accounts, whatever it may be, to degrade someone with the look of your eye or the word of your mouth or the intent of your heart. Those would be things that are living according to your flesh, your sinful nature. But we are called to live in a different sort of way. We are called to live in a way that is in accordance with the Holy Spirit of God. 
It's through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we are able to put to death the deeds of the body leading to life. I love the contrast that Paul uses here in this uh, illustration. It's so helpful. He says, you will die if you live according to the flesh, but if you put to death the deeds of your body, that leads to life, eternal life with God. So we're either putting something to death or something else is putting us to death, right? There's either a passive dying because we have been living according to our flesh, or there's an active putting to death the deeds of our body. John Owen once said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. You see, we, we do not passively follow Jesus. It, it's not our default position to live surrendered to God. It's a battle every day, isn't it? You feel it, I feel it. It's a battle each and every day to actually say yes to Jesus, to say yes to the call of God on our life, to live surrendered, to live in humility. It's hard. And so if, if we're not actively engaged in that battle, then we're losing. We have to be active. We cannot be passive in this battle. So the question for you is, are you fighting alongside God through the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, or are you fighting against God? You see, we can passively and, and apathetically die because we live according to what feels good. We can live according to what seems right or what sounds spiritual, but in reality, it is according to our sinful nature. Or we can intentionally kill the sinful nature, crucifying it on the cross with Christ and live the abundant life that Jesus promised us in John 10.10. 10. Moving to verse 14, Paul writes, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Again, we don't have a debt to the flesh to live according to it. Uh, our obligation is not to the flesh, but our obligation is to the Holy Spirit. Following Jesus necessitates sacrifice. Again, it's not a simple, easy thing. It requires you to deny yourself and to take up your cross and to follow him. And that requires sacrifice. That requires you to not pursue some things that you want to pursue, to not experience some comforts that you might want to experience, to not do some things that you might want to do, because just because you want to do them doesn't make them godly. Just because you have an opportunity to do something does not make it good and God-honoring. And so it requires sacrifice. We are called to live differently than the world around us, to not just swim in a different current, sometimes to swim against the current of the culture that we live in. Ed Stetzer said, the moment that we are in does not change the mission that we are on. Our mission, we can't be confused about. Our mission is not religious freedom, but pursuing Jesus regardless of the cost. Our mission is not electing a particular official but it's in uncompromising allegiance to our King of Kings and our Lord of Lords. Our mission is not safety and security and comfort, but to go therefore and to make disciples of all nations, all people groups, all races and ethnicities, to make disciples of everyone. That is our mission. We are called to be the hands and the feet and the mouthpiece of Jesus Christ to all people, that by all possible, we, uh, all possible means we might actually win some to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would experience freedom and true life by grace through faith in him. 
The Spirit of God leads the disciple of Jesus in these things. How do we know if we are led by the Spirit? Well, there's a, a willingness here to be led by the Spirit, to yield to the conviction of the Holy Spirit as he confronts us, as we read God's Word and apply it in our lives. One Bible scholar wrote this. He said, God's people invariably fall back into sin when their focus turns away from the Almighty to themselves and to the things of the world. Right? You see this in your life. I see this in my own life. When I turn my mind away from the things of God, that's when temptation succeeds. That's when I'm starting to live in sin because I, I'm no longer thinking about how to please and glorify God. I'm not living according to the Spirit. I'm not following the leading of the Spirit. Instead, I'm following the leading of my flesh. We feel that struggle. We feel that challenge. And so as, we, uh, as, I, as I read this, I thought about th this old hymn, right? May we fix our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace, right? This, this old hymn has such deep truth for us. As we are led by the Spirit, we see evidence in the, the way we deal with sin, right? A, a sensitivity to sin, a, a conviction over our own sin, a regular practice of repentance in our lives, where it's not just a, a once-a-year thing where we get on our knees and like, oh, I'm so sorry for, you know, it's, it's an actual, like, continual practice of repentance. It's a surprise and, and a revulsion at the sin around us, but also a, a gracious compassion toward those who are living in sin, and a deep humility for ourselves because we know ourselves and we know that our sin is ever before us. It's in full view before us. As we think about being led by the Holy Spirit, we cannot follow the lead of the Spirit of God if we are unfamiliar and detached from Him during the week. Christianity is meant to be lived out in vulnerable, honest, and accountable community with people who love you in the Lord and desire for you to not walk in sin, but to walk in the Spirit of God. Do you have that kind of godly community around you? When we think about being led by the Spirit, you only get out of church and, and community, and, and you only get out of this what you are willing to put into it, what you're willing to sacrifice for it. If you only come to, to one service maybe two or three times a month, and, and that's it, you're missing out. You're missing out on what God really has for you in his body, in the body of Christ that comes together. One, there's a piece of the body missing when you're not here, but also that's not enough. If your faith in Jesus relies on one church service to fill you for the week, you're going to be running on empty before you even start work or school or parenting on Monday morning. You're already going to be empty because you're trying to do it really in your own power and just kind of throwing some Jesus on to go along with it. Again, you cannot follow the Spirit's lead if you're unfamiliar or detached from him during the week. You need to know the Word of God yourself. You need to be in godly community, to be in prayer and communion with the Lord on your own. Moving to the next couple of verses, Paul writes this, verses 15 and 16. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This brings us to point number two. We see that disciples of Jesus are not just led by the Spirit of God, but they are adopted as children of God. 
Back at verse 15, Paul connects fear with a spirit of slavery. Fear is a default emotion for many of us, though the default emotion for many of us, it, it, we see that according to those who are in Christ, fear is actually counter to God's work in us. It's not the spirit that we have received. We've not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, what spirit have we received? The spirit of adoption, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. This is a far better spirit. It's contrary to our flesh. It's contrary to our nature, but we are adopted into the family of God and experience the full and intimate relationship with God the Father that God the Son, Jesus, experiences. Adoption is inherently undeserved. Undoubtedly, you know someone who has either been adopted or has adopted somebody. There's this, this beauty to adoption that really so amazingly reveals to us who we are in Christ. And we see that it's inherently undeserved. It's not uh, about the, the good works of the child or, or the good experience or the good things, whatever. It, it is an inherently undeserved experience. One Bible scholar wrote this about adoption. He said, God graciously and lovingly seeks out unworthy men and women on his own initiative and makes them his children solely on the basis of their trust in his true son, Jesus Christ. Because of their adoption, believers will share the full inheritance of the son. As Paul describes adoption here, He's speaking to the Roman audience in the Roman context. Uh, adoption in this way was not actually a, a part of the Jewish culture. Um, it's not something that they practiced at that time. And it was with the Romans, though. And, and adoption was actually a really big deal. They took it very seriously. Uh, the heart of adoption was taking this child that was not naturally born into that family and, and giving to that child all of the rights, all the familial rights, all the legal rights of a birth child. This is what God gives to every believer of his, the, the rights and privileges to be called God's own children. He gives us the right to be called his child. Adoption, when we see in the Roman context, it required a, a severing of a relationship from their natural family. It would have been a legal and a social severing. They, they would have, have a different last name. They would not run in that same circle with those same people. It was a legal severing of that relationship from their natural family. And then the child would be permanently secured into the new family. Everything that came with the child, whatever obligation, whatever debt, whatever that was owed, that the child owed, was wiped away as if it had never existed. And they're accepted into and, and brought into this family in a full and complete way. There were also seven witnesses that were required for this in the case that if the father died and there were some challenges or some questions as to whether this kid was really adopted or not, there were seven different witnesses that could come forward and say, yes, that child has been adopted by this family and enjoys the full legal and social and all the other rights that come along with a natural born kid into this family. What a beautiful picture this is of the adoption that we experience by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We are severed from our old self, this sinful self, and we become a new creation. As we are severed from our old self, or we die to our old self, as it's so often called in Scripture, we come alive to Christ in this new family with all the legal rights and privileges of a natural-born child. We are born again into the family of God. Our debts, our, our sins are wiped 
clean. And we are debtors no longer to the flesh, but according to the Spirit of God. And the Spirit himself testifies in our own lives that we are children of God. And that's how we're able to cry out, Abba, Father. This term, Abba, Father, is is an intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. There's this intimacy that exists in Christianity that, that really exists nowhere else, where our God says that we can call him Abba. In, in the word Abba, it, it is really like daddy. It's this little kid understanding of their father, and, and they call out to him in, in this relationship that, that isn't earned by any other fact, and they've been accepted into this family. They've been born into this family, and so we've been born into the family of God, and he says, you can call me Abba. You can call me daddy. You can call me not just father in a more official term, but you can call me dad. There's an intimacy there that God invites us into. The Holy Spirit testifies of it, and we're able to call him Abba, Father, in the same way that Jesus, in one of the most intimate moments of his life, as he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion, he cries out to his Father, and he says, Abba, Father. We experience the same rights and the same ability to cry out to our Abba, Father. It's clear here in this intimacy that the heart of God toward you, that his disposition towards you is one of love, one of inviting you in, of welcoming you into his family, of saying, hey, I know things haven't haven't always gone right. (laughs) I know you've messed up. I know you've done things wrong. I know maybe you've got a lot of regrets. I know you've got a lot of challenges but come on home. He extends the invitation. It's always extended. (laughs) He invites you to come back to relationship with him, or maybe to come into a relationship for the first time with him, to know him, not just as a God of rules or regulations or things like that, but a God of relationship who says, hey, you can call me dad, and I'm never going to let you down. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I am your God, and your father. You are my beloved child. Come on home. This is the relationship that God desires with us. Moving to verse 16, we see Paul writes, the the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Again, the Spirit bears witness in the adoption ceremony that there are witnesses present saying, yes, this is a full and legal commitment, a full and legal adoption. And so here we have the Spirit who testifies, who himself bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. The Holy Spirit of God is our adoption witness. He bears witness to the truth of the fact that we are indeed God's children. And we can with confidence know that we are sons or daughters of God as we see ourselves led by the Spirit in some of the ways we referenced earlier. Paul continues in verse 17, which also brings us to point number three. In verse 17, he says, And if we are children— Then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Point number three is that we see that disciples of Jesus experience suffering as heirs with Jesus. Experience suffering as heirs with Jesus. So this is a very encouraging point. I'm so glad you're here and and you get to listen to this. It's so fun, right? Um, Experience suffering. Like, 
Ha, awesome. Here we go. Um, but this is the reality, right? It's, it's this amazing, hard to fathom, beautiful to behold reality of being a disciple of Jesus is that we get to live a life like he did. We get to follow his example. And as we follow the lead, man, he experienced suffering. Jesus knew what it was to be well acquainted with physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain, like anguish, like this deep soul-wrenching, gut-wrenching pain. He knew what it was. He suffered. We see throughout the course of his life, he, he knew what it was to suffer his family not understanding, his family actually turning their back on him, or some of his brothers and sisters turning their back on him for, for a little bit of time. We know that he knew what it was to suffer the betrayal of a friend, and not just the betrayal of, of Judas Iscariot, but all of his friends left him. All of them scattered. He knew what it was to, to suffer that, to suffer the denial of his friend that he even knew him, to suffer physically at the hands of the Roman soldiers, to suffer physically on the cross, to suffer the, the full extent and weight of the sins of humanity in a moment. He knew what it was to experience all that suffering. He knew what it was to, to suffer from the religious leaders of the time because he came in with a, a different kingdom and different way that they didn't quite understand of what it was to follow Jesus this new way of life. And so each of us, as we get to be an heir with Jesus, we actually get to be a, a fellow recipient with the suffering that Jesus experienced. Each of us fully and completely receive what Christ receives as the firstborn sons of God. So as heirs, we will one day be glorified with him in heaven, but we will suffer on earth for the sake of Christ, as Christ did for the sake of his Father's plan and our salvation. And so as we experience suffering, know that, that suffering uh, doesn't always come as a result of something that you did wrong or something that, that is uh, showing a, a break in your relationship with God, but it indeed is as you follow Jesus and you suffer because of your relationship with him, it actually gives a clear indication that you are a follower of Jesus, that you're not willing to make compromises that others might make because you're going to follow Jesus first and foremost, and it may cost you. That's a form of suffering. As we experience suffering, we want to approach it with the mindset of who we suffer with and what is to come, right? This suffering is a with experience. It's not a solo experience. You're not the only one, but instead we are united with Christ in this suffering. We suffer with him. Our minds are, are set on the eventual glory. We, we think heavenward, right? We, we know that what is now will not always be. We don't keep the, the blinders on in our suffering, but we see with a broader perspective and we see that there is something that is coming next that is far greater than what we are experiencing now. We want to keep our gaze heavenward. I think a good example of this is we think about the Apostle Peter that stepped out of the boat. We see this in, in Matthew chapter 14. He stepped out onto the water and he was walking on water for a minute. Like, how amazing would that be? Like, you're looking around, there, there's a, a storm going on, and you step out onto the waves, and you're walking with Jesus on the water. That's amazing. <laughs> but the wind and the waves catch his gaze. And Peter, instead of keeping his eyes on Jesus, he starts to look around. He starts to see that, man, this maybe wasn't the greatest idea. Oof, I don't, I'm not so sure about this. And for a moment, he, he loses trust. And what happens in that moment is he starts to sink into the waves. But what does he do in that moment? He cries out to Jesus, who's right there, and Jesus reaches down and grabs him and pulls him back up. And he talks to him about it and coaches him up a little bit, talks to him about having faith and, and trust in it and some of that. But Peter stepped out into the boat and took his eyes off Jesus and started to sink. If he kept his eyes on Jesus, I think the story would have gone differently. 
We wouldn't see ourselves so much in the story <laughs> because we, we see that we take our eyes off Jesus during these moments at times and then we start to flounder, we start to, to, start to sink beneath the surface, right? Start to get in a little bit over our heads. It's in those moments we need to cry out to Jesus. In, in the midst of our pain and our struggle and our suffering, cry out to him. Share with him what's going on. Be honest about the emotions that, that you're feeling and, and what is happening. Cry out in that suffering, but cry out to him because he's the one who makes it all make sense. <laughs> we cling to him in those moments. We want to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus because nothing else is going to withstand any of the, the tests or trials or sufferings or temptations that come at it. Nothing else can stand the test. So again, Peter cried out to Jesus, refocused on him, and that's what we need to do in our lives as well. Maybe you're in a season of suffering right now, and you're feeling it, just the hits coming from every direction. Don't allow your relationship with God to grow distant in those moments. Lean into him. It doesn't take the pain away. It doesn't all of a sudden make it like sunshine and rainbows. But what it does is it calms you. It helps you understand in a deeper way what is happening. As corny as it might sound, often the, the deepest pain that we feel becomes a platform that God uses for us to be able to speak truth and minister to the lives of others who are also suffering. Because we do this together in community. We're here for one another to share about the suffering that we've experienced that might be an encouragement to somebody else who maybe is just beginning that journey, and we're maybe at the end or the middle, and we're able to help and encourage somebody along the way. Paul continues in verse 18 and says, For I consider, again, these sufferings, that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Again, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This brings us to our fourth and final point. We see that disciples of Jesus will be glorified with Jesus. We live with our eye toward eternity. What does this life really have to offer compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us? What in our lives, what, what college scholarship or what sport or what degree or what job or what title or what salary or what family size or what marital status or what level of fame or popularity or what amount of, of community recognition or name reputation, what amount of suffering or ridicule or angst, what, what can compare to the glory of God that is going to be revealed to us when Jesus returns? Nothing can compare to that. Your suffering might be awful. It might be the worst thing that you have ever experienced, that anyone, anyone around you has ever seen, and yet it does not even compare to the glory that is going to be revealed. When we think about what heaven is going to be like, when we think about when we get there that there's going to be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, none of that stuff, like it begins to put things into perspective. Like what is now is not what will always be, and this is a season. It's a really rough season, but it's a season. And God is good through it all. And God is present through it all. And I can cry out to my Abba Father through it all. Whether things are going well or I'm experiencing suffering. Everything pales in comparison to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Do you believe that? Your answer is revealed in the way that you handle hardship. In the way that you respond to suffering when it comes. 
when suffering comes, it, it's not just throwing a, a pithy saying at it, saying like, well, things could be worse, or like, it's got to get better, or it's just a season. Like, it's, it's not just saying those words. Going through suffering is it, not just trying to, to grit it out and grind it out and like, just grit your teeth and get through it as quick as possible. It's not just like keeping going, keep your feet, whatever. It's like actually resting in God. It's taking a moment to, to stop and see that you're not alone in this journey. To see that, that God is, is right there with you. He's ministering to you. He's bringing other people in around you. We want to suffer well, right? Jesus knew what it was to suffer well and to not sin in his suffering, to not complain in his suffering. And so as we have our eyes and our, and our gaze heavenward, we're able to, to suffer well for the glory of God, knowing that we have this future secure in Christ by our adoption into the family of God. So what does this mean for us? First of all, if you are in a place where you are living according to your flesh, you're, uh, you've not made a decision to follow Jesus and, and by faith believe in his death, burial, and resurrection that paid the price for your sins, if you've not made a decision uh, about that, well, your first response is to make a decision. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Do you believe he is who he says he is? Do you believe that the Bible is true? Do you believe that the Bible communicates the, the true reality of who Jesus is, that, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he lived about 33 years on this earth, that he was crucified on a cross for your sins, that he was buried in a tomb, that he actually died, and that he paid the price and the penalty for your sins, and then he rose from the dead three days later? Like, do you believe that? You need to make a decision on whether you believe that or not. You start there. Make the decision to follow Jesus. Second, if you are a follower of Jesus, remember that, that you are called to follow the leader. It's a silly kid's game, but in, in life, this is who we're called to follow. We're called to follow the Holy Spirit as he guides and he leads us. You are not the leader. No one else around you is the leader. Nothing and no one compares to following the Holy Spirit as our leader. The Holy Spirit is the one who leads you, and so I want to encourage you, follow his direction. There are those moments where the Holy Spirit leads, and the Holy Spirit prompts you to do something, and you feel that prompting. Your response in that moment, are you going to say yes to that prompting or no? I encourage you, say yes to it. Because when you say no, that's called disobedience to God. And that's called sin. We want to live in obedience to him. And so when the Spirit prompts us, the Spirit moves, the Spirit leads, you want to follow the Spirit, follow his direction. And we are able to, to understand more of that as we're in godly community, as we read the Word of God, right? We're not hearers only, but we're doers of the Word of God. We read it and we apply it and we pray and are in relationship with our Abba Father. A third thing that you can do is cry out to your Heavenly Father who loves you so deeply. His heart is for you. His heart breaks for you. His heart weeps for you. His heart comes alongside you in your weaknesses, in your strengths, and he's always there for you. Cry out to him. Come to him. Lean into him. Know with confidence that, that you can approach your heavenly Father not based in your merit, not based in, in your good deeds or bad deeds or, or any deeds at all, but because he is your heavenly Father because he initiated the adoption and you received that full adoption as an heir with Christ. 
based on his love and his heart towards you. Lastly, know that suffering is inevitable. Jesus was perfect and he experienced suffering. You will too. Experience suffering for the right reasons, for following Jesus and living uncompromising in your obedience and relationship to him. Allow suffering to be redemptive in your life, to be used for God's glory as you keep your mind and your gaze heavenward and have an eternal mindset in the midst of that suffering. Again, it doesn't make suffering more enjoyable or less painful, but it allows us to suffer without sinning and, and deepens our faith in and dependence upon God in the midst of our suffering. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that, that we know with confidence that we don't have to continue on sinning because, God, we see this battle in front of us. We resonate with Paul as he says that the things that he wants to do are really hard to do because he just, the desire is there, but the action lacks. God, we feel that. We thank you that Paul shared his struggle with us, that we might be fellow strugglers along the way. I pray that we don't make this excuse for our sin, but instead that we look to engage this battle to follow you, to be led by the Holy Spirit of God, and to walk in step with that Holy Spirit, to faithfully follow you, Lord. I pray that we would be in godly community, that we would be in relationship with other people who love you, Jesus, and love us, that we can follow Jesus together to be there for one another, to minister to one another. God, I pray that we would be students of the word ourselves, that we would grow in the fruit of the Spirit each and every day of our lives, that we would uh, be, ha have our own spiritual disciplines and spiritual habits that grow us in relationship and understanding to you, that we can actually live this out in the world around us. God, we confess that we need your help, and we thank you that you sent your Holy Spirit to be our helper. Guide us. Lead us, Holy Spirit. May we follow your lead. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.